you. So once again, we're reading from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, friends. It's uh, good to be with you. My understanding with your pastor is that this is the last time you'll have me for the foreseeable future, uh, but it's, it's, still, it's good to be with you. And um, <clears throat> so this, was, this is what we're going to talk about today. Um, the Greek term for repentance is metanoia, okay? And um, that's what I want to think about with you today. And so the, the Greek term actually breaks down in this way. Noia means mind, right? <clears throat> and meta means something like after. And so like a mind that is different or changed after a certain event encounter or something along those lines, right? And uh, the reason why repentance is like um, an interesting idea is you can look at this in a lot of different ways. So um, there's this um, saying in ministry that after 30, people hardly change. I don't know how that works in this group um, because you all look, relatively young, um, but again, I, I don't have my glasses, so I'm not sure, but, uh, so, but there's a half-truth that um, as people get older, they don't really engage in repentance just because you sort of get stuck in your ways, and part of the reason also is because if you do repent when you're older, it's that much more difficult because you have to essentially own all of those years of, you might say, having had the wrong view, right? And so it's, I think, I see why people say metanoia is difficult after the age of 30. Now, it's also difficult in our culture because, you see, in our culture, repentance assumes that you're not seeing or living quite right. But, you see, in our culture, the basic narrative is what? There, just you do you, you know, like, have you heard that? Have you said that? Like, you do you, 
And assumed in that is like, the only wrong thing you could possibly do is not do you. Does that make sense? And so the idea of repentance is actually becoming more and more foreign to us today. And the way actually it even comes out among Christians is this. Even recently I heard, um, I was talking with this individual at our church, and he said something like this. Well, I just don't want to be judgmental. So I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to be judgmental. Maybe you have felt that. Maybe you have said that. But that's actually really interesting because, you see, when you say, I'm not going to be judgmental, right? By the way, nowhere in the Bible does it say that. Just a footnote. But when you say, I'm not going to be judgmental, what you're saying is, listen, I'm not going to call you to repentance. You see? So this idea of repentance, I would say, is becoming so foreign to, to just us as a society, us as a culture, and us as, you know, just even a church. But I want to suggest to you that repentance is the key to life, freedom, happiness, hope, right? And that's why we need to recover it. Again, you know, it's, if, if I can put it in this way, right? I was, um, there's this couple in my church, and um, their father, so they're a little older, the median age at my church keeps going up. So this couple, they're about 46, 47. And um, there's a father in the family who just <laughs> makes life, every, every family has um, at least one of these. I have three, but you know, <laughs> you, you get, man, like if, if our dad would just like, just get it. If he would just realize, listen, you, you can't, you can't treat mom like that. You can't treat her like she's subhuman. She's not your slave. You can't talk to your children like that. And, wh- you know, th- and what they say is, ah, you know, he's 75. There's no way he's going to change at this point. But you know when they say, if he would just change a little bit, just a little bit, everyone's else life, everyone's life would be so much happier. And you see, that gives us some insight into the hope that repentance brings. It's not, I know it sounds like a religious, dirty word, but it's just that, you know, like, it's actually something really amazing. Like, think about any and every relationship you have, right? You know that if just someone just repented, just changed just a little bit, life would be better for them, life would be better for everyone else too, right? And so what I want to suggest to you, I think what this text is teaching us, is the the importance, the necessity, the beauty of repentance. And I just want to invite you just to be open-minded about it. And so along those lines, there are three, um, I think, necessary ingredients for repentance to happen, three necessary ingredients. And let me uh, just go through these with you very quickly. The first is this. We have to be willing to repent of the stories we have adopted, the stories. So that's going to be number one. Number two is this. We have to be willing to repent of, this one might sound abstract, but it's not, um, the way we approach our rhythms and spaces in life. Now, that sounds like super esoteric, and uh, give me five minutes. It might be equally abstract, but I'll try. Okay, so that's the second one. And the third one is this. We have to also repent of the views we have about God that honestly are entirely arbitrary. And uh, taken together, 
they lead to like a kind of meta repentance, which brings about life and happiness. Okay, and so yeah, main idea today, I just want to think about uh, the idea of repentance with you, but just suggest this to you that it it sounds like again like such a dirty religious word, but there is so much hope when when you get it when it clicks. Okay, so the first one is this: <clears throat> the stories that we live by. Okay, this is um. This sounds philosophical, but it's actually it hits right at home. Every person has adopted a story for himself or herself. <clears throat> and that story has tremendous implications on your life, right? It really does influence your ability to happy to be happy, uh, your sense like I've done something with my life. And so years ago, I can't believe it's been already 20 years since coming to Northern Virginia, this, uh, this spiritual wasteland. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> you know, we go wherever God sends us. Um, and it is funny when my wife and I, we were, um, when we were uh, dating, she asked me what like, my long-term plan was. I said I was going to become a missionary. And her mom took me aside and she said, you cannot get married if you become a missionary. But you know, I realized that mission field can be anywhere. So Northern Virginia, like, here we are. <laughs> okay, so anyway, so, but, so 20 years ago, this was the narrative when I came to Northern Virginia. I, I don't know if it's the same anymore. I think it's changed a little. But back then, the idea was you come to Northern Virginia, and you work, like, really hard. Work really hard, because everyone in Northern Virginia works hard. And then you always begin, like, with a condo. And then in about two years, you move to, like, a townhouse. And then another two years, you move to, like, a single-family house. And then, you know, another two years, like, a real single-family house, you know, the ones in Northern Virginia. And then another two years, you also buy a vacation home, right? And granted, that's somewhat of an exaggeration. But you see, there's this narrative that many people have adopted. And so at least during that time, when I would counsel people, it was interesting that they were using these milestones, or this narrative to like enjoy or not enjoy a sense of like success or a sense of like purpose, right? That's what I mean when I say the narratives we live by are so important. And right now, this is the main narrative of our culture, right? And you really have to understand this to understand why we tick the way we do, right? And the best evidence of this is in every Disney movie, right? But this is the basic narrative. The basic narrative, there's this um, incredible Harvard sociologist. His name is Charles Taylor. Uh, most of you have probably heard of him, right? And he said this, we live in an age of the buffered self, the buffered self. So in our age, right, this is the true hero. The true hero is the one that is able to buffer herself against all external forces and impositions and pressures so that the only thing that she hears is the voice within, right, and follows that voice into the unknown, okay? And that's the narrative, and that's the heroic person of our age. And that's from, that's from which we get these, the, the imperatives, you have to be true to yourself. You do you. These are the narratives that we have, right? And they are incredibly, incredibly powerful. Even recently, I asked my, I asked my first uh, son, I said, hey, what do you want to do in life, right? And he goes, I'm going to become a doctor. I'm like, a doctor? Like, why? He goes, it's secure financially, and I'll be rich. 
And I was like, <laughs> I was like all right, like, why do you want that? And already here, because he's a product of, honestly, Northern Virginia, he has this sense that the good life, the good life will be this, that if I just make enough money and I get married, and he said he's going to have um, two kids. He said three are too many because we have three. And he said, <laughs> it's, he said two, right? And so it's really interesting to see the, him being controlled by this narrative. I'm spending so much time here because you see in our text, right, you have at least two groups of people. You have like the everyday Israelite, and this is the narrative that they have right now. Their narrative is like right now, we are living in oppression. Um, you know, like what's it like to be in Ukraine right now, to live under the, you know, constant threat of Russian attack. So the Israelites are basically living in oppression, the average, um, and he or she is thinking, we cannot wait until the next David comes. So they have this story that's running in their minds, right? And then the Pharisees and the Sadducees, let me just focus on one of them, the Sadducees, right? They were essentially, um, I don't want to say they were sellouts, but they were basically these individuals that didn't believe in the resurrection. And they were pretty consistent because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They thought, you know, your best life now. So they basically sold out to the oppressive authorities, uh, you know, achieved high status and sort of enjoying life here and now. But you see, the point here is that both groups, they have these narratives that they're living by. <coughs> and all of a sudden, John the Baptist comes. And he says this. He says, remember that promise that was given by Isaiah? This promise that God, the one way back who created the heavens and the earth, he promised that a second Adam would come? Well, prior to the second Adam's coming, God would send like a prophet to make the way. And John the Baptist is that prophet. And John the Baptist essentially comes and he says, let me tell you, right, what's about to happen. That promised second Adam, right, he's about to be born He's about to enter this world, and everything is going to change, right? And in that context, he says, repent, repent. And this is what he's saying, like, in ways that are hopefully intelligible to us. He says, whatever narrative you have had in life, right, whatever narrative you've had in life, this is the one narrative. This is the one story that you have to live by. You see, and this is, by the way, really really, really powerful when it clicks. Um, you know, I've preached here enough so you know that uh, I love memoirs. And <laughs> the one I read most recently was uh, by Jeanette McCurdy. Does the name ring a bell? She was the co-star in iCarly. I know that because that was my wife's favorite show. Um, and she wrote this memoir, I'm Glad My Mom Died. So I'm glad my mom died. <laughs> and basically, this is what her uh, story is about. Her mom wanted to be an actress, but wasn't able to do so. Just so like any typical parent, this mother attempted to vicariously live that life through her daughter, Jeanette, and uh, basically manipulated her daughter, abused her in different ways, and um, all, that, all that fun stuff. So, so for the longest time, Jeanette McCurdy is living by this one narrative and this one narrative is being the perfect daughter that makes her mom happy. So because she had that story, all of her life decisions was based on that narrative. But her mom dies from cancer. Sorry to give away the book, right? And all of a sudden, the rest of her life 
is like following this narrative of freedom from her mom's oppressive ways and influences, right? And so she begins to live a very different life because she's trying to adopt a different narrative. Now, in the end, it's equally oppressive, right? Because there's no freedom when, you know, your master is just yourself. But you see, it's a really interesting memoir because her struggle represents the new life that is born when you have a different narrative. The gospel is saying, it's not dismissing your story. I want to be really clear about this. It's not dismissing your story, (coughs) but it's presenting you the one story that really matters. It really, really, really matters. And that story is the story that God has promised to make all things new through his son. And really growing as a Christian, no matter how old you are, it doesn't matter, no matter how long you've been a Christian, it's this. Are you willing to repent of your narrative? Are you willing to give up the story that you had written for yourself and adopt the one story that is true and the one story that will last into eternity? And that's, by the way, super duper hard. And that's why I'm glad no one said amen, because you're very honest as people, Giving up your story is really hard. It's really, really, really hard. And that's why I think one of the best ways to just move forward is to ask this, ask this question. Is this gospel story true? Not even like whether you find it appealing, but is this the real story of history? And then, and only then, do you begin to reprocess your own story. But that is the first thing that this text is really teaching. It's inviting you, lay down your story, lay down your narrative, because there is a much greater narrative, right? Now, just very quickly, I know you've heard this quote before, but C.S. Lewis put it well. He said, the problem is not that we ask too much from God. The problem is actually we ask too little from God. If and when you learn to let go of your stories, the story that God invites you to, it is much greater. It's much better. It's a better kingdom. Right? So that's number one. <coughs> Second, uh, this one sounds a little abstract. Repenting of our rhythms and spaces. Right? Now, one of the things that we take for granted, but thankfully we have like a great, well, not great, but we have an illustration of this from the past few years. Think back with me at COVID, COVID, right? <clears throat> what happened with COVID, among other things? Just think about what COVID was about. It broke your rhythms and your spaces. Have you ever thought about COVID in that sense? Like previously, you know, you would wake up six in the morning or five, get ready, you know, just sort of predict the morning commute, uh, make Make your coffee, get dressed, and boom, you're there. Right? You're, you go to work, you're stuck in D.C. traffic, you have an existential crisis, why am I doing this? And you still do it. So that was the rhythm of life, right? And then the space of working was at the office surrounded by colleagues. What happened during COVID? Your rhythms got messed up. Did you notice that? Like, or they changed. All of a sudden, the clear demarcation between like personal life and professional life, they began to blur together. That's why a lot of people felt off. And then in terms of space, all of a sudden, your bedroom, the sacred place of resting, 
became also what? Your place of working. And so COVID was such a cataclysmic event, not just for medical reasons, not, for e- not just for economic reasons, but because it totally changed the rhythms of our life. It totally changed the spaces we live in, you see? And this is why your understanding of rhythm and space, it really matters. It really, really does. Now, why do I mention that? <coughs> Here in this text, again, you have two groups. You have all the average people, and presumably the poor people. This is why uh, Matthew includes John's like attire, like you know, <laughs> yeah, it was a little weird, honestly, camel stuff and uh, his like very simple diet. But this is the point that Ma- uh, Matthew was trying to make. You see, most of the ordinary people during this time were not what you and I think middle class. Everyone was basically poor. It was an agrarian society, and so there's this little detail that people don't recognize. When it says that they all went out to John to be baptized, they were breaking their rhythms and normal spaces. It's not very different from, so my in-laws, uh, they owned a, um, a tiny deli in Philadelphia. And so I asked my, <coughs> I asked my wife, um, what was it like growing up, you know, parents were like owners of a small deli in the middle of, of Philadelphia. And I asked her specifically, uh, how often did you go on vacation? And she said, once, once, right? And by the way, this is probably one of the ways I love my wife is I try to take her on a lot of trips, right? And so um, she said, once. I said, why only once? And she said, this is what happened. One time, my parents closed the store for just one week. And then when they got back, all their regular clients were gone. The rhythm had been broken. Uh, The space was no longer considered as the go-to place. And so for, you might say, people of less means, a more impoverished background, to change your rhythms in space, it's not as easy as you think. But that's what's so extraordinary about this first group that Matthew describes. He says that they basically left their situations, right? They broke their rhythms, they broke their space because they heard this story and they realized all of a sudden, hmm, my life, my real life, actually has to change. Now, in stark contrast, we have these Pharisees and Sadducees. And John is, I mean, pretty funny guy. Like, he's like, you vipers. <laughs> that's like, you know, that's not seeker-friendly church, right? So anyway, so he goes, listen, you vipers. He says, how come you're not repenting? But from the paradigm of rhythm and spaces, it means that despite all their religiosity, right? Because in this society, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were basically the seminary professors and pastors, meaning they had the most biblical knowledge and they appeared the most pious. But you notice um, John says to them, none of you um, are repenting. And what he's getting at is what's noticeable is that none of your rhythms and spaces have changed. And then he says something very interesting. He says, listen, a tree that does not bear the fruit of repentance, God will cut down and he will throw into the fire. When I look at this passage from the lens of rhythms and spaces, which one do you align with more? Meaning, right? Has your adoption of the gospel story, has it really altered your rhythms and your spaces, your rhythms and spaces, right? And let me give you an example that is 
really simple and basic, okay? Um, I am a complete introvert. I am a true, true, true <laughs> introvert. And, um, and it's just the way God has wired me. Um, and uh, one of my counselors, I remember, uh, she was not a, she, she's not a Christian, but when she was like doing a personality test on me, she's like, this was her response. She's like, wait, 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 you're a pastor? And I said, yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I am. And she goes, but, but you're not just an introvert. You're like it, to the extreme. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know. She goes, how do you do it? I'm like, uh, it's hard. It's not easy, right? But I share this with you because I'm an introvert. My wife is an introvert. And uh, this is one of the reasons why Christmas break was so sweet. We took two days off with just our family. We went snowboarding. It was just the five of us, and it was nice. It was totally nice. But you see, the rit- our everyday rhythm is more like this. <clears throat> we have people over so often, so often, that um, our kids regularly ask, who's coming tonight? <clears throat> and um, you know, we say, oh, this person or that person. And, uh, you know, one day my kids ask me, hey, Dad, like, you really like people, don't you, right? And I was like, obviously I'm not known by my children, okay? I was like, no, of course, like, you know, like, no, not necessarily. You know, I love people. I don't necessarily like people. And, um, <laughs> and then they're like, so, like, why are we always having people over? Because there's this rhythm that our kids know. About an hour before uh, people come, we uh, clean up a little, and uh, we prepare the food, and then we cook, and then... We say goodbye, we clean, and then uh, we do this rhythm. <clears throat> and um, they ask, why are you always doing this? And my wife and I, we say, because we, we're banking that Jesus rose from the dead. And what we're trying to tell them is this, that you see, embracing the gospel narrative, it actually cha- it should change both the rhythms of life and... Um, the way you understand space. So even like our house, in one sense, it's not a sacred place. It's not just for our family. It's for, you know, anyone and everyone. And that's what John is saying when he's saying, if you believe in the gospel, right, it means repenting, meaning changing your rhythms and your spaces. It's very helpful. And so I want to encourage you, right, to ask, are you more like the Israelites who literally broke rhythm, broke their spaces, and they went, and because of their repentance, they actually changed the rhythms and spaces of their lives? Or, you know, are you like the Pharisees and Sadducees who actually knew quite a bit about the Bible, quite a bit about God, but they were never willing to let that gospel story change their rhythms, and change their spaces. See? And um, that's something I just want to invite you to think about. Let me give you just a quick application, then we'll move forward. Even something like this. I know this is outrageous. Um, Have you considered how the call of the gospel has changed the rhythm of your weekends? And so I'm not sure you all have this struggle, but this is the struggle we have at New City. 
uh, my church, and so this is the struggle. Um, our people work really hard. They're, they're very studious, they're very successful, and because they work so hard from Monday to Friday, their weekends are very sacred, so maybe some of you can relate to this. And so, <clears throat> in order to be professionally successful, they have to work hard from Monday to Friday, which means they often, now on the weekends, enjoy their lives and travel, which means what? How does this all add up? They're very good at missing Sundays. And so one of the things that we have challenged our members to consider is this thing called regular Sunday attendance, a different rhythm. You, know, you want to know something that's a little funny? Our members are willing to actually give quite a bit financially to the church. But to change their rhythms, right, that's something that's been very, like, hmm. But that's what repentance looks like changing your rhythms, and changing your spaces. The last thing, and very succinctly, is this. So, repenting also of our views of God, right? So, this is the problem with the Pharisees and Sadducees. While everyone else is going to repent, they, they don't feel the need to repent. And the reason for that is because um, they claim to be Abraham's children. You notice that in the narrative, right? And it's sort of like this. So, my first son... He's really, um, he's an interesting character. So, um, and I told you my two boys have this bizarre, very unbiblical, nepotistic view of church. And I think I've shared with you, like, uh, years ago, they both, they were, like, squabbling, and then finally they asked me to arbitrate. They're like, Dad, we were just wondering, you know, like, when you die, that's how they begin the conversation, like, who gets the church? <laughs> As if, like, the church is some enterprise that I own, right? So anyway, um, so, like, this is in the background. My son, in Sunday school, this is, like, when he was six or seven, was, like, just in Sunday school, and a deacon was teaching them the Bible, and he was not listening. So the deacon said to him, hey, come on, cut that out. Like, you know, I'm trying to teach a lesson here. My son had the audacity to say, I don't have to listen to you because my dad's the boss of this church. <laughs> and uh, this deacon said, oh, yeah? Let me go grab him right now. And then my son was like, oh, I was just kidding. <laughs> I was just kidding. <laughs> but you see, like, it was interesting. I remember talking to him. I was like, you know, like what, what was that about? He was like, you know, like, you're my dad, you know, like, you're the boss of the church, and I get a free pass. I was like, oh, that's, that's ridiculous, <laughs> totally ridiculous. You see, that is actually not exactly, but not so different from these religious leaders. They're like, we don't have to repent because we are true Israel, right? And now let me take this one step further. This gets at the key. This gets at the key. The Pharisees in particular didn't have to repent. They felt like they didn't have to repent, and this is why. Because they were exceptionally religious. Exceptionally religious. They kept, like, the law to the, to the nth degree. Like, um, you know, this is why, like, Paul, who's a Pharisee, you know, remember in Philippians 3? He says, when it comes to the Decalogue, flawless, perfect. And that's why they didn't feel the need to repent. And where does this drive home for us? You see, <clears throat> some of us don't feel the need to repent because relative to other people, we feel like we've lived a pretty decent life. And so somehow, we have this view 
that someday when we stand before God, he's going to look at you, and you're going to be like, well, you know, compared to him, I'm not that bad, and so God will give me a pass. Or the more popular view nowadays is this, we serve a God of love. Come one, come all, right? And, um, you know, we don't have time to parse this out. But what's really fascinating about contemporary Western Christianity is that it is one of the few times in history where everyone makes up his or her own religion. Let me just give you a very simple example. You know the idea that God is love? It is found in no sacred religious text. You might say, well, the Bible says God is love, but the Bible also says God is holy. There is no religious system. Like, anyone that knows Religion 101 that says, you know, God is a God of love that embraces anyone and everyone. And this is why it's fascinating. This is one of the greatest contradictions in Western spirituality. We make up our own religion. God is love, and yet we tell everyone to be open-minded, but we impose this totally random view on the rest of the world. That's That's one of the main contradictions about Western spirituality. The Bible is saying this. You have to repent of this, like the random arbitrary views that we have of God. And the reason why we have to repent is because the God of the Bible is so much greater. And this is why. And then we'll end with this. You see, the God of the Bible is a God of love. But he's not just like a God of love in like a lovey-dovey, cuddly, Santa Claus way. This is a God who has loved us tangibly and incredibly and sacrificially. You see, as much as my first son is like, you know, whatever, right? Would I ever, ever sacrifice his life for anyone else, let alone my enemies? No, absolutely not. But what is amazing about the actual God of the Bible, not the God you fabricate in your mind, not the God you think you want, is that this God, he loved us so much that he sent his son to usher in the new kingdom, right? And as you work through the book of Matthew, you'll see what that means, right? But he loved us so much that he sent his son to usher in the kingdom. And for you and me, we just sang this, you know, we are brothers, we are sisters, we are sons, we are daughters. For all of that to be possible, the son had to be cast out so that you and I could be adopted and brought into the family of God. And the Bible is saying, Repent of these random views of God, these beliefs that you have of God, so that you can take hold of the God that is not only true, but that is actually the God we long for, a God who cares so much about justice. He knows every sorrow. He knows every injustice that you have suffered. So he cares about, injustice. He cares about justice, but a God who is also so compassionate that there is no sin, that he will not forgive you of if you trust in him. And that's why John, he comes to all the Israelites and he says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And in the same way, friends, I want to invite you, repent, the kingdom of God has come. He has come so that we might have life and life in all its fullness.
Let's pray to go. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, um, this idea of metanoia, this idea of really changing our views, our perspectives, it's, um, it's a foreign thing. It's a difficult thing. And yet, it's the thing that offers us freedom and happiness and the chance to start over and to experience and have something much greater. And so I pray for this, uh, this great church, this really great church that continues to grow. I pray that they would know what it means to repent of the narratives that they have adopted. I pray that they would repent of really even the rhythms and spaces that they hold on to so tightly. And I pray that they would even repent of their arbitrary views of who you are. And instead that they would behold the God that has revealed himself truly, beautifully, and wondrously in the gospel. It's in the Son's name we pray. Amen.